Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and once again, we are coming at you with another new episode, and uh, you know some exciting news on the on the front. Uh, I will be uh, accepting this chaplain position that was offered to me on Tuesday, and so I should start sometime in November. Uh, it'll be exclusively working with hospice patients, and so I think. The more I consider and ponder and pray about it, the more it will help me in my ministry and help me to minister to my church and help me to just be a you know a more dynamically adverse pastor. And I say that because not everybody who's on their deathbed or in hospice, uh, you know, are Christian, and so it gives me the ability to really practice this act of listening, practice the art of having conversation and being a companion and showing Christ and showing his love and mercy that he's given me in hopes that I can bring that to these people who have these concerns. So very excited for the opportunity. Like I said, that should start for me sometime around November. I'm going through the onboarding process now. Um, I will still probably do the other things that I'm doing now for the meantime. This is just a per diem measure. So it's just an as needed basis. Um, but I'm pretty excited for it. So, uh, no news yet on the book front. I uh, sent it off to the publisher. I should have an answer hopefully this week. Um, as is, it's the Thursday, the 19th. And as I record this episode, I have yet to get anything back. But I'm hoping today, tomorrow, maybe even next week. No hurry. But uh, they should give me an answer on cost to publish and whether they want to publish it. So I, I don't see the second part of that to be any difficulties, but, you know, there's always the holdout. There's always a concern with that. Um, you know, it just may not fit their, you know, desires or, or wants or anything like that. So we'll see. Um, continuously pushing forward on that, Mark. Um, other than that, you know, we're just turning on episodes, and uh, we're going to look at... Um, Peter's Confession of Christ here in Matthew chapter 16. I haven't quite really decided if I want to take on a 21 through 23 or if I want to use 23 
through the end. I think what I'll do for today's show is we'll do 13 through 23, and then next week we'll pick up our crosses and follow Jesus and examine what that means on a deeper level. They're all pretty much interconnected, and so they're they're not like they're you know separate topics. They are in 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 the essence that we could preach separate topics on them, but they're interconnected and and they they really start to mold the end of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so let's dig into the text here at hand. Uh, we begin with the thirteenth verse in chapter sixteen. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And then let's move on to verse 21 here. For From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day to be raised. And Peter said to him and took him aside and re- began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, two separate time periods, right? Um, but probably within the same day. It just really, the, verse 21 really just kind of continues. From that time, Jesus begins to teach his disciples, begins to show them that he's going to go to Jerusalem. This is the path he is taking, and this must be what happens when he gets to Jerusalem. So let's break down these uh, 13 through 20 verses here. There's a lot happening, and there's a lot that can be, um, a lot of different sermons that we can preach on this. There's a lot of different ways we can go. There's a lot of topics here that we can talk about. And, you know, with, with the kind of the, the scale of the show, unfortunately, I, I probably wouldn't even come close to exhausting any of them. But we will try and do our best to just provide some basic insights as we read this text and help to understand kind of, you know, these passages. So, uh, we have now come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, uh, and Jesus asks his disciples, they're traveling along the, the, the road, and he is striking up conversation. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they reply to him, well, some say that you are John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so it's pretty, you know, cut and dry. It's just the the marker of, you know, the, the viewpoints, if you would, of the crowds that Jesus has interacted with. And they whisper amongst each other, who is this man? Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah that has come back? Is this Jeremiah? Is this, you know, John the Baptist even? 
in, in, in a new form. They try and associate him with all of these prominent people from their past, but they miss out that he is, in fact, the true and one Messiah who has come to save them. So Jesus continues the conversation, continues the asking of questions, and he says, but who do you say that I am? Referring to his disciples. So he's asked them, what are they hearing from the crowds? And then he goes, okay, so you've, you've heard these things from the crowds. Now, who do you say I am? Do you say that I'm one of these prophets or do you say something else? And Peter replies, he says, you are the Christ, which is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Remember, I know this is elementary here for us, some of us, but uh, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so that's why Peter refers to him as you are the Christ. So Matthew clearly identifies Jesus here as the promised Messiah as he does throughout his gospel. John the Baptist questions, though, whether Jesus is the Christ. And now Peter as a representative of the Twelve, boldly confesses that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And John Huss says this, he says, Faith which properly is the foundation of the church, exalted, excelled in Peter. And I think this is great because, again, we're going to get into that conversational piece upon the rock in which Christ builds his church, whether it's Peter himself or the confession that Peter makes. And I think a big misconception in the church is, especially in the Catholic church, is that they they look and say that it's Peter being the rock. But in fact, it's the confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That is what the gates of hell cannot prevail against. It is, in fact, Jesus that the church is built on, not Peter. As much as respect as I have for Peter and you know, in, in the early church and all that, I think it's a big misconception to go back and make the claim that it is upon Peter's shoulders that the church is built. But in fact, it's Peter's confession. So we'll look at that here, hopefully a little bit more. So Peter goes on to say, you are the son of the living God. After Jesus came walking out on the sea to his disciples, he confessed, they confessed that he was the son of God. This living is emphasizing that God is the source of life, as later evidenced in Christ's resurrection. And Beatty says this, He calls him the living God by way of distinction from the false gods, which the heathendoms in, in its various delusions made itself to worship. So they are either dead or they are incapable of performing these manners, these miracles by which Jesus is doing. So this passage is essentially the climax of all of the chapters from 4 to 16. This this little chunk of verses is the climax to the story, and everything else will proceed from that. So right here we have the declaration of Peter, this proclamation that he is in, in pointing to Christ being the Son of the living God. That is... That is the probably the most pronounced proclamation we have from Peter right here up until this point. And this should be all of our confessions. This statement should be on our mouth all the time that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the ruler of the world. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to him. 
He is, in fact, everything, the Alpha, the Omega. He was in the beginning. He will be in the end. He is the Word. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. He is the door. He is the shepherd. All of these things point us to Christ. And this is our proclamation, exactly what Paul writes in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the grave, then you shall be saved. That is the statement and proclamation of all Christianity right there. And so we hold to that view and we hold to that belief exactly what Peter says. And it's upon that confession that the church is built on. So moving on here to verse 17, um, Jesus answers and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in the kingdom of heaven has revealed it to you. So now moving on to the verse in question, verse 18. This is one, again, is a lot of the Catholics like to sit on. And, I, you know, I, I don't fault them for it because it, it is often misread or could be even just misapplied. But I think it's fairly straightforward because Jesus is telling Peter, says, because of what you've told me, I will build my church upon that. And he says, I tell you, Peter, and on this, this being the confession of Peter, not this as being Peter himself, because this is describing an inanimate object here, the confession of Christ, or the confession of Peter here, rather, instead of Peter himself. Now, if the text had read, and I tell you, Peter, upon you I build this rock, then yes, we would obviously be building the church upon Peter. But the church of Christ is not built upon the authority of man. It is rather built upon the ministry and the confession that Peter makes, in which he proclaims that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And John Huss says this, he says, Christ is therefore the foundation by whom primary and in whom primary, primarily the Holy Catholic Church is founded. And faith is the foundation with which it is founded, that, which, that faith which works through love. And that is the essence, the church, being the assembly, the gathering of all believers. It is not just a building, but it is both a building and a church. And I really, I really hate the modern, and I use that word strongly in this sense, I hate the fact that the modern church, or the modern Christian, more or less, negates the body of Christ negates the church, and they say, "We, you know, the church isn't a building; it's a bot. It's it's us as Christians." Well, yes, and it's the assembly, and so wherever that assembly meets, that is the church. So it's both and. It's it is the building or facility or location. It could be in the woods. It could be wherever. But wherever the church gathers, that is the church. It is both the people, and the facility. And so I think we have to be very cognizant of that uh, as we handle texts like this. So we should uh, you know, recognize the fact that the church is built upon the confession that Peter makes, not just on Peter. The church is not built upon the authority of man, but it rather is built upon the authority of the Christ, the one who has given Peter the faith to confess this. So then in verse 19, we kind of take a little bit of a different swing here. Jesus is now saying, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. So this, in of its sense, is what we would call the establishment of the office of the keys. 
this would also be the essentially the establishment of the office of pastor or bishop or deacon or whatever you want to give it. But it is not the establishment of the office of pope. There is only one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ. And there is only, you know, there, there is no need to have one person at the head of the church. In fact, I personally believe a church should be a flat hierarchy with support systems to help the church's function, but the church standing upon the authority and confession of Christ should be its own governing body. Now, I do believe, again, this you know has to be done correctly. It has to be led by confessional, biblical men. It should not fall into the wayside like the ELCA does, because even with you know a hierarchy and leadership up and down the ringer, the, the establishment can and has fallen into debauchery and sin. And that's what we see with the ELCA. Now, other churches may have that, and they may not even be a part of the ELCA. They just are independent Lutherans, or they're a part of other synods. That is something, obviously, is going to happen, too. So, whether there's a hierarchy or not, I think a church operates best when the church is confessional in its nature, confessional in its roots, and the pastor leads the church in the integrity that Scripture has commanded the pastor to do so. So, the office of the keys is the establishment of that office of pastor. It is the establishment of this notion of loosening and binding. Um, just a quick story. When I was in the process of picking out a seminary, uh, we met at Columbia Theological Seminary in South Carolina. And the campus pastor and I got into a conversation about this very text. And he says, um, you know, that there's just some sins that we should loosen on earth and there's other sins that we should bind on earth. And, and then he goes off into the trenches and talk about Leviticus and all that when he doesn't even bring up um, Paul's notion about homosexuality. And I made the statement, I'm like, I'm not asking about Leviticus. I'm asking about how do you use or apply this verse to 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans 1, or anything that Jesus says in the Gospels, how do you apply this verse to that? And he really couldn't give me a good answer, and I feel like that's a big uh, miss opportunity from this pastor. But, you know, going through seminary myself and having to handle this text and handle this scripture, it makes much more sense to me now, looking back upon my time in seminary and my time as a pastor. It is not about just determining which sins I should, you know, apply to people or which sins I should, uh, you know, loosen and let slide and what other sins should I bond. That's not what the passage is, nor is that what the Office of Keys is. What it is telling you is, is you name sin what it is. You call sin, sin. You declare it to be killing the person that is committing it and those around that person. And you, for, you loosen the bond of sin to that person by forgiving them. It is not just to say, oh, you're, you're a homosexual. Okay, well, that's fine. There's no, there's no issues there. Well, there is, because Scripture tells us that this is an abomination. This is living against the de declarative and appropriate manner by which God has commanded us to do so. Be fruitful and multiply. You can't multiply if you're homosexual. You can adopt. You can, you can do that, but that's not how and what God has called us to do. We are to multiply as man and woman. And so we cannot, and nor do we have the authority to loosen that sin. We cannot just say, oh, you murdered people? That's fine. No, no big deal. 
you know, oh, you, you cheated on your spouse, you're an alcoholic, you're addicted to drugs, you're addicted to pornography. Oh, no big deal. You know, whatever, whatever that pastor is, you know, feeling the jive of that week, they can just loosen whatever sin. And then they can bind whatever sin. They can, they can excommunicate people who uh, are not following their legalistic structure. And so this is a very difficult passage to deal with because it can lead to legalism. Very easily it can lead to legalism. And so what I would urge and what I would stress in my own ministry is the fact that this is a passage that is dealing with the overall naming of sin, what it is, and that is sin, and declaring the person, if they receive that you know, naming of sin, they recognize that they are sinful, then you can turn and, and forgive them. Offer them the forgiveness of Christ. That is the loosening. You bind them in the sin, and then you loosen them with the gospel. That is how we would apply that passage. So then he goes on, obviously, to tell his disciples that they cannot speak of this until the appropriate time. He says, don't tell anybody that he was the Christ. And so this is kind of the hush-hush conversation again that we see from Jesus. And this carries on until he's arrested in Jerusalem here in a short time period. So verses 21 through 23, um, very simple. Jesus is foretelling his death again. He's going to head into Jerusalem. Uh, we'll see that here shortly. Uh, he's going to suffer many things. This is going to be the rejection of the Pharisees. This will be the arrest during the night. This will be the mock trials. This will be the slapping, the spitting, the beating, the flogging, the carrying of the cross, the nailing to the cross, the death on the cross, and his resurrection. So all of these things he is going to suffer and then be triumphant over. And it will come at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And once they have completed their task by nailing Jesus to the cross and allowing him to die, he will be raised on the third day. Now, again, we talked about uh, the time periods in which Jesus spends in the grave and that even just a short period of time in the grave would account for an entire day in the Jewish, in the Jewish view of time. So we should understand that on the third day, it's not three consecutive 24-hour periods. It's just, you know, day and night of a day would be a full day, right? And so it's Friday afternoon, Friday night, into Saturday morning, Saturday night, into Sunday morning. That's the third day. And so that's how we would recognize this. But very simply, Jesus is foretelling again his death, and he tells uh, his disciples what he must suffer. And then Peter takes him aside. And now remember, this, there's probably not a big time gap between these two passages. It's probably fairly, fairly short, very connected. So Peter takes him aside, and he rebukes him. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen. I won't let the scribes and the Pharisees take you and, and beat you and, and kill you. That's not going to happen. And then Jesus obviously turns and says, yet behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things that are man. So in this text, it is Jesus actually addressing Peter as Satan's spokesman, because his counsel would keep Jesus from fulfilling God's purpose. This hindrance is just merely being Peter trying to be a stumbling block here. Uh, and the, this is, again, Peter stumbling himself into this. And he's, as Jesus marks it, he is calling him Satan, or more or less just a spokesman of him, because Peter's trying to prevent the will of God from being carried out. Uh, 
So Peter genuinely thinks that he's actually helping Jesus when he tries to talk him out of this suffering and death. And at times we fail to understand the ways of God, thinking that we know better. Obviously, this is very much like Peter here. Jesus knows that he must take up his cross for our salvation. Peter will learn that truth later, the truth that continues to give us comfort and peace. And so we assert this you know, notion of what we'll talk about next week with the picking up of the cross. But it is very important for us to see what Jesus is telling Peter and for Peter to essentially put his foot right into his mouth, you know, only a short period of time after he declares that this is the Christ, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he goes and he falls into sin and disbelief because he's saying, okay, you're the son of God, but we're not going to let anything bad happen to you. And he tries to, you know, like step in front and fend off the evil scribes and Pharisees. No, Jesus knew even as he tells Peter that upon you, upon your confession, will be the church. We will build the church. This will be the rock, the foundation, the cornerstone, is the confession that you have made about me. And then Jesus goes on to describe his death, and Peter says, no, 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 no. Uh, you, you can't let that happen. You are, you are, you are God. You can't, you can't suffer and die. That's just, it doesn't make sense. Well, logically, it doesn't. But... Here we are. This is the mission that Christ has become to, and he is he's walking to, and we'll see now that from this time on, this is the journey to Jerusalem, the journey to the cross, and the journey to his death, which obviously will be, uh, will be reconciled with his resurrection. And so that is what we are on track for now going into the next few chapters. We still have a few chapters before he makes the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, but we are moving now closer to Jerusalem, and we're moving closer to that Holy Week where he will then be turned over and uh, nailed to a cross on a Friday morning. So that's the text, ladies and gentlemen. Again, there's a lot that we can handle or we could dig into. There's a lot that we could have handled on this show. You know, I could have spent a whole episode talking about the Office of the Keys. I could have spent a whole episode simply talking about the 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 confession of Christ and the building of the church upon that for you know centuries and why that is so vital that we confess Christ and I think it is if a church isn't confessing Christ as Lord and Savior and professing that God raised him from the grave then then that's not the church that is not a church of Christ that is that is a house of Satan and that is that if you build a church based upon anything else you are building it upon the shoulders of Satan and not on Christ. So that's the text, ladies and gentlemen. Like I said, there's so much we can do on it, but I want to just be uh, attentive to the time as we get closer to that 30-minute mark, and I want to obviously respect your time for listening to this and not just drone on and on over this text. Even though I love these portions here in Matthew 16, I think there's a lot of depth to it and a lot that we can talk about. But for the sake of it, I'm going to let you all go. I hope you guys have a great weekend. It is Sunday. Reformation Sunday is coming up just a week now in a couple of days by the time this episode airs. And so I hope you guys have a great Reformation Sunday. If we don't, if you don't hear this episode until then, uh, I hope you guys are blessed and are able to partake in the sacraments. I have two baptisms I get to conduct on Reformation Sunday. So I'm very, very excited for that. I love doing baptisms. It is the best part, in my opinion, of being a pastor. So uh, that's that, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in once again. Have a great week. God bless. We'll see you all later. Thank you.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.